Well, if you didn't quite work it out earlier, our theme this morning is the theme of adoption. That God in his great grace adopts us to be his children. Now, of all the different aspects of our salvation that we'll be considering in this series, there is perhaps one truth which magnifies God's grace and mercy above the others. One blessing and one privilege that God bestows upon the redeemed sinner, which takes God's grace towards us to a level that in many ways doesn't actually seem to be necessary. God loved us and so loved us that he sent his only son to suffer and die in our place as our substitute for the forgiveness of our sins to save us from the condemnation that we deserve. Wonderful. But the gospel goes further than that. God renews and regenerates us from being the sinful and broken people that we were and gives us new life and hope and peace and comfort and strength by coming and dwelling within us. He grants us faith and repentance so that we now live our lives in a conscious and willful union with Christ, walking with him in love and obedience. But even that's not all. He declares that we now are in right standing with him because of this great exchange that has occurred. So that God sees in Christ, the one who has taken upon himself our sin and shame and guilt, and he sees us now as being clothed with Christ's righteousness. And so we now are reconciled to God. And we're justified before him in his sight. This is amazing. But the gospel doesn't stop there. He gives us the promise that when this life ends, we shall move on to that place, which is our true home, and be there for all eternity. Well, surely God has done for us so much more than we deserve. Indeed. But he's not done yet. As that old Irish comedian, Jimmy Cricket, used to say, come here, there's more. There's more. The Bible tells us that God's grace abounds to us much more than sin abounds in us. And we discover in the gospel that God is not a God of just enough. He isn't. God doesn't do just enough to save you. Although he'd be worthy of all honour and praise, even if that's all he had done. But his grace abounds toward you far more than just enough. And perhaps the greatest demonstration and outworking of the abundance of God's grace is seen in that having already done so much for the plight of sinful men and women, he produces one final blessing and privilege which takes his grace into the stratosphere. 
He adopts us as his own children. From being those who've wandered away from God, those who are wicked in their disobedience and their rebellion, those who've made themselves to be God's enemies, put themselves under the curse of sin, put themselves under the righteous anger and judgment of God, God doesn't merely bring us back into the middle ground to a point of being neutral before him. His grace abounds and takes us as far in the opposite direction as you can possibly imagine going by adopting us to be one of his own, in his own family. From time to time, I have been really touched by the testimony of families who found themselves in the most awful situation and yet who've been able to express the most amazing level of forgiveness. I'm talking about Christian parents who I've come to hear of from time to time who found themselves in the awful situation where through the act of wicked men a child has been taken from them and they've been able to express forgiveness to the one who took the life of their child. And perhaps you've heard testimonies like that and you've wondered if you could genuinely do the same and mean it if you found yourself in their shoes. But what if those grieving parents adopted into their family the one who had taken the life of their natural born child and treated that murderer as one of their own a step too far more grace than that murderer deserves and yet that is precisely what God has done for you that is precisely what God has done to you you can claim to be his child. You who in that hymn that we sing, you whose voice would have been mocking him amongst the scoffers if you'd been there 2,000 years ago. You who would have been in the crowd shouting, crucify him. He adopts you as his child. Wow. So let's consider this glorious truth by first of all, what we're going to do is a brief survey of the Bible. Well, it's the New Testament. Just to get an overview of what the Bible actually teaches, some scriptures are going to come up on the screen. We'll go through them fairly quickly. We're not going to spend loads of time on them. But then once we've done that, we'll look at a few specific points, points of importance and implication for us who are then children of God. So let's begin with that first reading that we had and just look at the one verse in John chapter 1 where John declares there, as many as received him, that is Christ, to them God gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. So we note there that God gives us the right to become 
something that we are not children of God. Because in our natural sinful state, we cannot consider ourselves to be God's children, nor can we consider God to be our father in our sins. The only sense in which that can be thought of is if you think of yourself as the creature and he the creator. But that's as far as it goes. In Ephesians chapter 2, the reality of all of us in our sinful state is made abundantly clear. You once walked according to the course of this world. Paul's writing to Christians. You once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, because that's who you used to be, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature not children of God, children of wrath, just like everybody else. You used to be children of wrath, God's anger directed towards you. But Paul encourages the church in Rome to remember this wonderful new identity which they now have. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, he says, these are sons of God. You receive the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What a wonderful change. What an amazing turnaround. And it's clear that if God is our father and we are his children, then what we have is the picture of a family. And I'll be mentioning this again this evening from a different context, but you need to remember God only has one family. And it's a family of like faith in God. In Romans chapter 9, we read these words. They are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children. In other words, children of God, because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. That came as a shock to many Jews. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. In other words, this family of God is not based upon your typical family tree by means of physical birth and bloodline. Being born a Jew does not mean that you're automatically a child of God. And many of them weren't. There were many in the nation state of Israel who were not part of God's family because it's a family of faith and they themselves did not have that faith. And active, genuine faith is the key here. Children of the promise are those who are children through faith in Christ. And that's exactly what Paul explains to the churches in Galatia. Know that only those who are of faith our sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, that's you and me, unless you do happen to be of Jewish descent, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, 
in all the nation, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham, one family. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. God only has one family. So he then says, there is, no, there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, all one in Christ and heirs together according to the promise. You are a member with Abraham of God's one family of faith, a child of God, if you are in Christ. What grace it is that God has shown us. And Paul goes on to agree with John that adoption means that at conversion we become something that we were not previously. He says, when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, this is Galatians 4, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons so that we can become something that we're, that we're not. And because your sons, again, the spirit of his son is in us, we cry out, Abba, Father. He uses that same expression there also. You're a son and an heir of God through Christ. Some of you will know that this issue of adoption and being children of God features large in the first epistle of John. He seeks to emphasize the importance of this new family identity that we have, that it's very real and that being real, it must reshape our lives. And he mentions it right in the middle of that first letter in chapter three. Behold, what manner of love the father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. John's blown away by it too. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him, beloved. Now we are children of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. You're only one or the other. A child of God or a child of the devil. A child of God or a child of wrath. In Christ or not in Christ, which is you this morning. You're one or the other. John states very clearly this new identity, this new relationship that exists amongst those who belong to Christ. And if it's real and if it's true, it has to change you. And then finally, in terms of this little survey of the Bible that we're doing to begin with, Paul also causes us to look forward. Paul's always looking forward. Because just as we enter into the full completion of our salvation when Christ returns, together with his entire church, so too at that event do we enter into the completion of our adoption. He says in Roman 8, Romans 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. We know the whole creation groans and labours with birth pangs 
together until now. Not only that, we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for what, Paul? For the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. So there's a final stage and completion of this adoption process, which will be fulfilled when at the great resurrection at Christ's return, we shall receive new bodies like Christ's resurrection bodies and the adoption will be completed. All of God's children being gathered together for all of eternity completes the adoption process. And there we are, that one family all together for the very first time with Christ for eternity. Well, there's a brief overview of what the Bible teaches regarding adoption. Now, what we need to do is just highlight the significance and the implication for you and me as part of our salvation in all of this. So let's think about a few points that will help us just to tease out all of that information that the Bible gives us. Here's the first. Adoption accompanies conversion and saving faith. It's what happens to you at conversion. I think you'll probably have seen already from the scriptures that we've looked at. It's at conversion by means of faith in Christ that God gives us the right to become his children. He adopts us into his family and he confirms it by the work of the Holy Spirit within our hearts. Now you might think that following what we've seen earlier in this series about regeneration, about being born again and the new birth, that the Bible might speak about us being born into God's family. After all, birth is the usual way that you become part of a family. So why does the Bible not use the phrase born into the family of God? Why does it talk about adoption? Well, of course, a human baby that's born into a family has no prior existence and no previous identity or status. It hasn't belonged anywhere else first. <coughs> However, that's not true of us in relation to God when we come to him in conversion. We do have a prior existence. We do have a previous identity. We do have a previous status and it's something that gets in the way of us and God, the one who would be our heavenly father. We were lost in our sins. We were under sin's dominion. We were citizens of another kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. We were under the rule of Satan. We were dead to God in our trespasses and sins, separated from God and cut off from him, children of wrath. Now, our being adopted takes account of the fact that we have been moved, transferred, from one position to a new position, from the old to the new. Our condition and our position before God has been completely transformed. And in those verses we read in Galatians 4 and Romans 8, Paul tells us that having brought us to new birth and to repentance and faith, the Holy Spirit, having led us to Christ, and done that work in us, 
confirms in our hearts that you can know that you are God's child. Indeed, Paul says that being led by the Spirit of God and being a child of God go hand in hand. You cannot have the one without the other. So being a child of God means living a Spirit-led life. You can't have just one. They're not options. They go together. Being filled with the Spirit and being a child of God go hand in hand. Hence, Paul's exhortation in Ephesians 5 that you walk as children of light, as one who is Spirit-filled and led. And Philippians 2 where he says, become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Because if you're a child of God, the Spirit of God is within you. God's children are to walk in holiness and godliness and in obedience to him and his word because they're his children and because they are being led by his spirit. If you're not being led by the spirit, you're not his child. The second thing, adoption is not the same as justification. We looked at justification last week. The wonder of adoption is that in many ways it's almost an extravagance on God's part. Strictly speaking, adoption isn't necessary for us to even be saved. In bringing us to new birth and life, we can see that it must be possible for God to bring us to repentance and faith and to know God, to pray to God, worship him, be under his word, be under his lordship but not have to be looked on as his child, necessarily. A sheep in his flock, a slave under a new master, certainly. But it doesn't require that we be adopted as children. We looked at justification last week, being put in a right standing before God by means of Christ's atoning death and resurrection and by having his righteousness imputed to us. These things don't require us to be or become his children. But God has chosen to adopt us in addition to these things. Why? Well, let me give you a few suggestions. One, as a mark of the greatness and abundance of his grace. To just demonstrate how vast his grace is towards you. And secondly, because of the nature of the relationship that God wants us to have with him. It's a wonderful relationship that God desires that we share with him. And thirdly, our adoption as children brings even greater glory and honour to his name. He's even more worthy of our praise. Regeneration deals with our spiritual life within Justification deals with our legal standing before God. Adoption changes our relationship to God so that we we may think of him and come to him as our father. And he likewise deals with us as his children. 
But we do need to remember, thirdly, that we are not sons in exactly the same way that Christ is the Son. Even though at one point Paul refers to Christians as joint heirs with Christ and says that we are to be conformed to the image of his Son so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, I trust that you will realize this does not mean that we are being put on an absolutely equal footing with Christ in terms of his sonship. We are not sons in exactly the same sense that Christ is the son. Christ is the eternally begotten son. This has been his relationship with his father for all of eternity. Christ is not a son by adoption as we are. Christ is the son who is also the second person of the Godhead, fully equal to the Father and the express image of his glory. Therefore, Christ's sonship is unique and his relationship to the Father as the Son of God is not exactly the same as yours as a Son of God. Jesus actually brings this out in very interesting ways. For example, John chapter 20, he's talking to Mary Magdalene and he says this, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Why does he not say to Mary, our father? Why does he not say to Mary, our God? Because the relationship of Christ the Son to God the Father is not the same for him as it is for you. And so he says, my father and your father. He is my father and he is your father. But there's a difference. He is my God and he's your God. But there is a distinction between us. It's one and the same, God and Father, but Christ's relationship to the first person of the Trinity is not the same as yours because he is the only begotten Son. Nevertheless, we have this glorious privilege that because of our union with Christ, God declares you to be his Son and confers upon you all the blessings and privileges that go with it. And note before I go on to the next point that your relationship as sons is to the Father and to the Father alone. You're not a son of Christ. You're not a son of the Holy Spirit. You're a son of the Father. Whilst God is one God, he is three persons and we relate to each of those persons in different ways, which is why Jesus taught us to pray our Father whilst he always prayed my father these little nuances in the scriptures are there for a reason you know but these truths and doctrines are not disconnected they all mesh together wonderfully and even though we must retain this distinction between ourselves and Christ that in no way diminishes the blessings and privileges which are ours as his children that's a wonderful thing fourthly as we draw to a close 
its privileges and its responsibilities. Let me mention a few things under this one heading. First of all, you now know God as your father. Even though we're described as slaves of Christ in terms of our submission to him, we're all encouraged and emboldened by Christ himself to approach God as a child comes to a loving and caring father. And this God is the creator, the Lord of hosts, the almighty, our judge. This is the great I am. But he himself has chosen to adopt us so as to establish this relationship of father and child. That's how great his love and compassion is for you. There are those wonderful passages in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus speaks of the loving faithfulness of God. He knows what you need. Of how much more value to him are you than the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. Yet look how he feeds and clothes them. How much more will he provide for you? Any good human father will provide good things for their child when they're asked for them. How much more when you ask of your heavenly father? What a thing it is to kneel before the God who simply spoke and from nothing created everything and to be able to address him as our father who is in heaven. I don't know if it still happens. When I was a boy, children could often be heard playing top trumps about each other's dads in the playground. My dad's bigger than your dad. My dad's better than your dad. My dad's got this job. My dad drives this car, blah, 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 blah. Maybe it doesn't happen today. Used to. As a Christian, you can say, you'll never believe who my dad is. It's this level of personal relationship with God which comes to the fore in the New Testament, which wasn't known to the same degree in the Old Testament. Likewise, the inner working of the Holy Spirit within the Christian. There's this level of intimacy with God as our loving Father, which Jesus introduces in the Sermon on the Mount, which just staggers people. It's a wonderful, glorious privilege that you have. And with it comes the promise of inheritance. It was in Galatians 4 that we read of being made heirs with Christ. Now this is the biblical significance of us all, male and female, of being spoken of as sons, even though the word children is also used. Sonship in Bible times meant an inheritance. In our own country, it's only recently that the constitution of our nation has been changed to permit Princess Charlotte to be next in line to the throne after Prince George and before younger brother Louis. When Princess Anne was born, even though she's older than Andrew and Edward, she had to take her place behind them in the line of succession because she was a woman. So ladies, don't shun the concept of being called a son in the Bible rather than a daughter because it signifies the great privilege of inheritance that you share just as much as any man and therefore it actually elevates and dignifies women. It does not demean them. Peter heard Jesus say that the father has a house with many rooms and he must return to heaven 
and prepare a place there for every believer. And later, that same Peter opened up a letter with these words, According to his abundant mercy, God has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. An inheritance. To live is Christ. To die is gain. I hope you can all say that with a full and glad heart. To die is gain. For most people in this world, life consists in the accumulation of things. Things to be enjoyed as much as possible in the very short time that you have available to you. For the Christian, life consists in the accumulating of an eternal inheritance and you will have all the time of eternity to enjoy it. It really is a no-brainer, isn't it? The necessity of discipline. You can read about that in Hebrews chapter 12. God doesn't, God doesn't delay in chastening his children when we need it. When we need it. One of the greatest forms of child neglect that we see in our own society today is the lack of parental discipline. The government gets blamed, the police get blamed, the schools get blamed. No one's got the gumption to stand up and say, hey, Britain, you are lousy, rotten parents. No one will say it. You can't say that. You'll hurt people's feelings. Well, for sure, there are going to be some parents in situations where it does need to say a little bit, it needs to be said a bit more gently than that. I acknowledge that. And some are lousy parents because their parents were lousy and they don't actually know what good parenting looks like. And I do also know that some parents are struggling in desperate circumstances and they urgently need compassion and a great deal of help and understanding. But it is still the case, nevertheless, that they're failing terribly as parents. Lousy parents don't guide and direct their children, don't train and discipline their children, and God is not a lousy father. He's the best there is. He's the original one. And he will guide and direct you in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And he'll discipline you when it's necessary. Because that's what loving fathers do in order to keep their children on the safe path. There's also the privilege of suffering with adoption. Something that Paul says about being an heir in Romans 8 that he doesn't say in Galatians 4. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him. It isn't just sonship that you share with Christ. As the son suffered, you must share in his sufferings also. You don't get to pick and choose just the nice sounding bits of the gospel, you know. You have to take it all. If you're a son, you'll suffer like the son did. And then there's the blessing of family. I'm not going to expound too much on this, but why are there so many instructions and exhortations regarding our conduct and behaviour towards one another? It has its root right here in adoption. All of us have been adopted by God, chosen and precious to him. 
and overriding whatever I think of you and whatever you think of me is that we are all under God in Christ as his children. And you know, there are probably times when God would like to tap each of us on the shoulder and whisper in our ear, excuse me, that's my child you're talking about. I think, don't you? So we have the responsibility to exercise ourselves unto godliness because God, who is your father, has a family name to maintain. John says, we're children of God and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. The responsibility is to be holy as he is holy to walk as the children of light that you are. The responsibility is to be learning to lay aside all your anxieties by casting them all upon him because you have a loving heavenly father who knows your every need. The responsibility is to emulate his love for his children and to show to them the kind of gracious and tender affection and care that he has shown to you. You are sons you are heirs, you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation. Let others see in you the astounding grace that God has bestowed upon you, which is freely given who will, to all who will come to Christ and believe in him.